Okay, we're going to come to a time in God's Word. Now we're going to look at a passage from His Word. We're going to talk about what it means and why it matters and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible, would you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2? I know it looks like a typo. We really are looking at one verse today. But in order to just give us a little bit of context, we're going to read the two verses just before. So we'll look at Ephesians 8 through 10, but we're going to focus right in on verse 10. So if you found that, would you stand together with me and read this passage? Ephesians chapter 2, beginning of verse 8, Paul says this, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And here's what we'll focus in today. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, or to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is God's Word. You may be seated. Allow me to quickly uh, pray for us once more and just ask the Spirit's blessing on this time, and then we'll dig in together. Spirit of God, we're asking now, uh, as you have already been so powerfully present here today, would you continue that presence? I'm asking you uh, right now to accomplish something powerful through your Word. Uh, As we dive into this together, would you work in miraculous ways above and beyond what our expectations were when we came today. I don't know what any, any people came in today expecting, but God, I've come in today expecting you to accomplish miraculous things. I'm trusting you to do even more than I expect, and I believe you're going to accomplish that uh, through this time in your word, through this time gathering together with your people, through this day. It won't be because of our ability, but because of yours. And so because we believe you have infinite ability, You are not limited in any way. We ask that you would just accomplish great things and do it in this moment here through the preaching of your word. God, uh, accomplish the work you want to do in each one of us. And as I always ask, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue now to speak your truth. Amen. So uh, this past year, my wife and I, we decided to begin studying through a book together. Um, I don't know if you've ever done this. I, I would just recommend it. It's awesome. Not only do you get to learn something new, but it's just a way to continue to grow and build into your relationship. As you work through something together, you're talking through the same stuff. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a great thing to enter into together. Highly recommend it. Um, but while you might cast your vote for something like dad jokes... While you might cast your vote for something like when mom goes on a health kick and family meals for the next month are suddenly devoid of all flavor, <laughs> the, the thing in my own experience now that has, that, that has had the most eye-roll-inducing power in my daughters is actually this, studying a book together. It's not any of those other things. Studying a book together has produced the most eye-rolling power in my daughters. And if you've ever worked through a book before or done something like this together, you already know the reason why. It's because, well, you're both same time working together through these ideas. You're looking at the same stuff all the time, same ideas, constantly working through it together. So your kids, they just tend to get it from both sides. No matter who they're with or what they're talking to, they're always bringing up the book. You know, it's like we read in that book. And, oh, do you know, so-and-so said this, and you're trying to implement the ideas into your own life and into your family. And, like, I, after a while, the kids are like, if you say that book again, I'm, just, I'm out of this family. They're just done. 
with, with this. The book we ended up going through together was this book, Dare to Lead. I know you thought I was going to say the Bible. It sounds very unspiritual. We also study the Bible together and, and individually. But this is the book we decided to read to together, Dare to Lead by Brene Brown. She is, uh, holds a Ph.D. in social work and works as research professor at University of Houston. Great thing about this book, if, if you're looking for some of her work to, to look at, is this one's kind of actually a summary of a lot of her different work. So you can kind of get like three or four books in one. So just note that for yourself. But one of the practices we wanted to draw out of this book and felt like it would be great to build into the culture of our family was the practice of fact-checking. Checking the facts of a story. Investigation, curiosity, and stories, instead of being those who are knowers, being those who are curious investigators, fact-checking the story. And the reason we thought this would be such a beneficial idea is because we recognized in our own lives, in the life of our family, just how little we did this. Actually, how often we don't check out the story, how often we don't look to see what's really going on. And, and, and the way this works out is usually this. For, for all of us, I think we could all agree we do this, we gather just enough facts about a person or about a situation, and then we create a believable story out of those few facts, and then that's the story. That's the truth right there. We never bother to go and investigate whether or not the story we created is actually accurate or not. It's just like, no, no, I, I gathered these pieces. This is the story I put together. That's it. That's, that's the practice that I think we all do. The, the term Brown uses to describe this fill-in-the-blanks-for-yourself story creation thing we all do is confabulation. There's a $10 word for parties that you can whip out sometime. Confabulation. Uh, this is a term she draws from the work of Jonathan Gottschall in his book, The Storytelling Animal. And confabulation is actually a psychiatric term uh, that is used to describe the behavior of people who suffer with illnesses like dementia or Alzheimer's disease that they use to cover over or hide their memory loss by filling in the blanks themselves for things that they've forgotten. So... They don't remember what's happening and they just, their mind creates something and that's the story now. This is what is true now. The difference between confabulation and lying, whether it's in the Alzheimer's patient or in any one of us today, is that we believe the stories are actually true. We're not making up a story. For us, in our mind, the story we've put together from those pieced together facts, that's the truth. That's what happened. I, 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 we just go with that story, which is why the shorthand definition for the term confabulation has become lies honestly told. I'll leave it to you to decide what you think about that. But this, okay, now here's where the fact-checking comes in, right? Okay, because now, in order to fight against a confabulation that keeps us trapped in a, a destructive story that keeps us trapped in assumptions about ourselves or about other people that are very often untrue or at least not completely true, here's the way we fight against it. We speak this story out loud to the one we've created it about. Whoever the story we've created it about, we speak the story out loud to them using a very simple phrase, and now we can cue the eye roll from my daughters, using the phrase, the story I'm telling myself is... <laughs> See, there it is. Or the story I'm making up right now is blank. And then you speak out whatever the story is. So the story I'm telling myself right now is that my contributions to this company are not truly valued. The story I'm making up is that you value your work more than spending time with our family. 
The story I'm telling myself right now that I'm believing is that I'm not actually worthy of love and respect from somebody. Whatever it is, we speak that story out loud to that person in order to investigate whether or not the story you've created is right. Have I got it right? And I know, I know this is like, it's scary to do this. It's incredibly exposing to, to reveal that story because it reveals how often we jump to negative assumptions about people. I, we believe the worst so often about people. But do you see how being willing to speak that story out loud just immediately removes so much of the power of those destructive stories? When first of all, we, we're willing to humbly acknowledge that we may not have all the facts, we may not be seeing it all properly. That's why we use that language of what I'm making up is, we're acknowledging I might not see this properly. Can you help me understand? We're, we're laying down the idea of omniscience and saying, can you help me see? Because this is what I'm telling myself. And also think about the gift it is to bring this story to someone and allow them to fill in the blanks that you've just filled in for them. <laughs> to say, hey, this is the story. Is this right? And allow them to be, oh, no, no, actually this Totally different story all of a sudden. As Brown puts it, the difference or the delta between what we make up about our experience and the truth we discover through this process is where the meaning and wisdom of this experience live. The delta, the difference, like what she's saying, what we discover through that process of investigation is where the key learnings lie. That's the key learning areas in that place of where we've been missing each other. There's the key learnings right there. We just have to be willing to walk into our stories and rumble. And I mention all that as we continue in our teaching series here through the book of Ephesians, now closing out this section of 10 verses in chapter 2 that walk us through this profound transformation that takes place in the life of someone who's been saved by grace through faith because there are two confabulations that are possible here. Two uh, potential stories we could make up here in particular about what Paul just said in verses 8 and 9. You have been saved by grace through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so no one can boast. There's, there's two stories we could make up about that. The first one being, because we don't contribute anything to our salvation, we don't bring anything to the relationship as far as our own contribution, we don't really have that much value to God. That's the first story we could begin telling ourselves. The second story that we could begin telling ourselves from this is that because our works don't contribute anything to our salvation, our good works are irrelevant. They don't matter. These are two stories we could begin to tell ourselves. And, and based on the way Paul closes out this section in verse 10, my guess is this is a story, there were stories that Paul worried that we would be in danger of creating as well. And so in order to balance out his teaching on salvation by grace alone through faith alone, Paul anticipates the potential confabulation and then fills in the blanks for us ahead of time. And in order to keep us guard against our own hearts telling ourselves either of these stories, I want to focus on what Paul writes here in verse 10 in particular and look at just two things together with you this morning. I want to talk about fact-checking our value story, and then fact-checking the story of our good works. Fact-checking our value story and the story of our good works. So if you closed your Bibles, would you open them again to that passage in Ephesians 2? 
follow along with me as we learn together how to fact check our confabulations about God with the truth of his word. Okay, so let's look first of all at fact checking our value story. Fact checking our value story. And I want to begin with this story in particular because the stories we tell ourselves about our value or our worth in this life are just so, so, so important. They, they, they bleed into so many other areas of our lives, and it's one of the reasons we try to establish a sense of value early on in the lives of our kids or our students, and where that sense has been damaged, either by abuse or, or because we've been seeking to find our value in things like how many people liked our last TikTok or Instagram post, the effects can be devastating, and they can take a long, long time to recover from. The stories we tell ourselves about our value But the sense of value that I think Paul is focusing on in verse 10 here in particular has to do with how we understand our value to God. What does God think about our value? And and the first reason I believe that's what he's focusing on is because of the way he begins verse 10 with the word for, which as we saw last week, shows that, that he's continuing on with whatever he was just talking about. Last week, he used the word for in verse 8, and he was referring back to our transition from death to life, from, in Christ, from before Christ to in Christ. And the point he was trying to make in verse 8 and 9 was about removing any opportunity for us to, to boast in that work as though we had accomplished it by our own good works. But just think about this. Having pressed so hard, there, like he was really hammering at home, having pressed so hard on the idea that we contribute nothing to our salvation... How easy would it be for Paul's readers then, or even us today, to begin to conclude that that means basically we don't have any value to God. That having brought nothing to the table, didn't bring anything to the party, you brought no meat to the barbecue, that the story we could begin to tell ourselves is that we value, we have about as much value to God as like the second backup goaltender on a Stanley Cup championship team. Like, yeah, you've got the team uniform, so you're on the team, but you didn't play a single, you didn't play one minute throughout the entire playoffs. So you can come to the victory party, but sit at the back and don't drink any champagne. Like, you're just lucky to be here. So, and we, and we could begin to think that that's how God views us. That's our value because, yeah, we're on the team, but we didn't contribute anything. So we don't really have that much value to him. And what I'm saying is I think Paul was worried that's the story that we can begin to tell ourselves as well. Otherwise, why, why even continue on with verse 10? Why not just leave well enough alone with the incredible kind of crescendo of verses 8 and 9? Why does he bother to go on? And so to more than balance out the picture, Paul, I think, adds verse 10 on here. Beginning, first of all, uh, at the beginning of verse 10, saying this. Look with me there. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Now, there's all kinds of things we could say about this already, but the first thing we need to understand, first of all, is what is workmanship? He says we are this. What is workmanship? Well, I think we get a a little bit more insight into what that means with some other translations that translate the first part of this verse is, for we are God's handiwork handiwork, which kind of implies this idea of like a dedicated investment of time and skill in order to craft something that that takes a lot of investment and work. We are God's handiwork. So already that kind of gives us an idea of 
what he's saying about our value, but I think even greater than that is when you look at just what the actual Greek word Paul uses here itself. He writes this, listen, Paul says, for we are God's poema. We are God's poema, from which we get the English word poem. Just let that sink in for a minute. Because what? (laughs) Can you even get your mind around an idea like that? That for those who are in Christ, those who have been made alive in Him, we are God's poetry. Wow. (laughs) Which means you could almost read the beginning of verse 10 saying saying that, that we are God's, His craftsmanship, His masterpiece, His work of art set on display for all to see. That's how God views us. I don't know about you. I think that almost feels like overkill, actually. But it means that, that Paul, I mean, he's, he's more than balancing out the picture here of, of yes, saved by grace through faith, but, but our value to God. More than balancing out, filling in the blanks for us, leaving us no doubt whatsoever about our value to a God who's done everything to save us. But as we've seen already, Paul just doesn't seem to be able to leave well enough alone. He says even more than that. And so he goes on to say that this this workmanship, this craftsmanship, this this poetry that God has written is created in Christ Jesus. We are God's poetry created in Christ Jesus, meaning that Jesus is the agent by which he creates this thing he values so greatly. Now I know we've... uh, Looked in passages in the past, like John 1, 3, uh, Colossians 1, 16. We, we learn from passages like that. All things are created through Jesus. Uh, he is the agent of God's creation. Paul says in Colossians 1, 16, all, all things were created by him and for him. So yeah, he's the, the agent of creation for all things. But what we looked at in verses like Ephesians 1, 7, places like Romans three twenty five, is that the way that he created the church... The way he created his people in particular was unique from the way that he created everything else. For while he spoke every other part of creation into existence, here, in order to create this people he values so much, he left the glories and the riches of heaven, took on human flesh, and then suffered and died on a Roman cross in order to create this people for his own possession. That's that's how we were created in Christ Jesus. And what Paul states is the motivation for that, why he would do that. We see just a few verses up in verse 4 of chapter 2, but, but really countless other places. It was his great love for us. That's why he wrote this poetry, because of his great love for us. I mean, it's something that Jesus confirms himself in one of the most well-known verses in the Bible, John 3.16. For God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only son, not to condemn the world, Jesus adds in the very following verse, but to save the world through him. Coming to earth, giving his life, it was a a rescue mission on behalf of those that he loved so much. Are you beginning to see it now? Are you beginning to... To see that the grace of God in Christ that does everything to save you is a demonstration for all time of the great love with which he loves you. Not applied clinically, 
not applied from a distance. He doesn't mail in a check. Love that is applied personally. Love that is applied at the cost of his own life. Paul says that this church that God created, this this family that God created by his grace extended to you through the son that he gave, he sees as his poetry, his craftsmanship, his masterpiece. Let me just pause for a minute and just absorb the weight of that. The motivation was love, what he created was a masterpiece, was his poetry. I don't, I don't know what story you're telling yourself today. We already talked this morning, as Sharon was mentioning, about stories. I don't know what story you're telling yourself as it relates to your life up, up until now and, and your value to anyone else. We base those stories on, on things that have been done to us. We base those stories on uh, other things we've looked at in our life to find value and worth. But what your Father in heaven is revealing to you here through his word this morning and will patiently reveal to you again and again and again every time you need it is that whenever you fact check the value of your story with him, the one whose opinion actually matters the most, When you allow him to fill in the blanks of your story, instead of trying to fill them in yourself, the story you always will walk away with is, I am beloved by my Father. I am his craftsmanship. I'm God's poetry. I'm his treasured possession. That's the story of your value according to God's word. Revealing for all time that his grace alone, which saves you, doesn't demean your value in any way. No, that that grace is a blood-bought demonstration for all time of just how great your value to him truly is. Okay, so that's fact-checking your value story. Again, something we can and should return to often. I don't know about you, I often need to return that to remind myself of how it is my father sees me, particularly when I failed. We need to return to when we've forgotten it, when we return to it living in a fallen world that keeps trying to convince us of other stories. But there's one other story. Paul wants us to fact check here, lest we fill in the blanks ourselves as it relates to what he says in verse 8 and 9 about our salvation by grace through faith. So let's look lastly now at fact checking the story of our good works. Fact-checking the story of our good works. And we need to look at this because in light of what Paul seems to be stressing so strongly about our good works in verse 8 and 9, it can make what he says in verse 10 sound like he's contradicting himself. Uh, I think Charles Spurgeon said it well in his work on this passage, stating, The text rings with a singular sound, for it seems strange to the ear that good works should be negatived as the cause of our salvation and then should be spoken of as the great end of it. Which I would say, yeah. Uh, Which is it, Paul? Choose one. Well, the simplest, most straightforward answer is found, first of all, just looking at the grammar of verse 10. That's the easy one. Just look at the grammar. We notice Paul does not say that we are created in Christ Jesus by good works. He says we are created in Christ Christ Jesus for them. To do good works, not not because of them. That's the first thing. The, The grammar helps us to see right away. Second answer is in also noting that Paul says 
these works that we were, create, we were created to do are works that God already prepared in advance. He prepared in advance that we should do them, which means, according to the Bible, not only do we not earn our salvation by works, we don't even come up with the good works to do. He's already prepared them in advance for us to do them. Reminds us of, of even like what Paul says a little bit later in Colossians, sorry, Philippians 2.13. It says, It is God who works in you both to will and to act according to his good pleasure. Which can sound for a second almost like Paul's just repeating what he already said, just trying to make sure we don't try to take any glory for ourselves and, and boast in our good works. But in light of all we've already been looking at already this morning, I think there's a lot more going on here. And Paul is once again seeking to fill in the blanks of our story for us before we start trying to write the story ourselves. And the story I believe Paul is concerned that we begin to tell ourselves here is that if we're saved by grace alone and our works contribute nothing to our salvation, then good works in the life of a Christian, they don't really matter at all. It's not accomplishing anything towards my salvation. So as far as God's concerned, my good works don't really matter. And that's a, a story that Paul is anxious to balance out in his teaching of salvation by grace through faith, both for his readers then as well as for you and I today. For as we just saw in verse 10, the beginning there, Paul says good works matter to God actually a great deal. Our good works matter a great deal. In fact, there's something that we've been revived and recreated in Christ for. We've been created for good works, which, interestingly, for all the controversy that you may or may not know about, is one of the places in the writings of the Apostle Paul where he is most clearly in alignment with what Jesus' half-brother James wrote in his epistle. A lot of times people have said, oh, these guys are, have different ideas of salvation. No, here is one of the most clearly aligned messages of both Paul and James. Now, yes, James undoubtedly appears to kind of swing the pendulum pretty far to the other end, when it comes to our whole idea of like our salvation and what that means, the implications. I mean, James writes things like this. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You, you believe there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. But I believe both Paul and James, they're actually communicating the exact same message. They're, creating, they're, they're communicating the exact same thing, namely that it, in our new life in Christ, although our good works are not the cause of our saving faith, they are absolutely the evidence that it truly exists. He's saying... If you have a saving faith, it will evidence itself in good works. You can't say that I have one and not show the evidence of it in the other. Which means, if we can just now collect all of Paul's teaching from 8 through 10 together into one package, looking at it all, the trajectory that he's showing, the, 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 the way that he's showing the order of salvation here is that grace, it is the material cause of our salvation. It is the thing that saves us, which leads to saving faith. Which, leads, which ignites a saving faith in us, and then that faith, when it is truly genuine, will evidence itself by our good works. This is the, the pathway, the order of salvation that he's showing. You, you can try to flip them around. You can try to Mr. Potato Head it and put them in different order, but you no longer have the Bible's teaching about salvation. Grace is a thing that ignites a saving faith, and faith 
that is truly genuine will evidence itself in our good works, revealing as you fact check the story that says our good works are irrelevant, they don't matter because they don't contribute to our salvation. It says our good works, they matter a great deal to God. We've been created in Christ Jesus for them. Which is an incredibly important thing for us to remember as we consider our own stories and as it relates to our new life in Christ, particularly when you remember something that we talk about a lot here, when we say that we have not only been saved from something, that is, our sin, and from death, we've been saved to something, which is to be God's witnesses. And you lose actually something of the sense of what Paul is trying to communicate about that in the way that the New International Version, which we're using here, uh, translates these verses. It's not wrong, but the New International Version is meant to be kind of a dynamic equivalency. They, they are giving us more of the sense, and it's not a literal word-for-word translation. But when you look at a more literal translation of what Paul writes, verse 10, for instance, first of all says, We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That we should walk in them, which maybe doesn't seem all that relevant, So what? Until you see that back in verse 1 and 2, Paul uses the exact same language negatively, stating, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to walk as you followed the ways of this world and so on. So he's comparing and contrasting these two ways of walking in our before Christ and our in Christ way of living. Helping us to see through these two contrasting pictures the very real importance of good works and of godly living and godly character in the life of someone who's been raised to new life by Christ. That although our good works do not contribute to our salvation in any way, they are absolutely to be the fruit and the evidence that we truly have been saved, that we truly have that saving faith. Which means, first of all, Paul is filling in the blanks for the legalist. He's filling in the blanks for the legalist who's telling themselves a story that their good works are making them more acceptable to God. They're making me stand above maybe these other people. God loves me more because of this. But he's also rewriting the story of the libertarian, the one who's telling themselves a story that says personal devotion, a godly character, spiritual discipline are optional practices for someone who's being accepted by God. To the first, he corrects the story with, no, no, you've been saved by grace alone. It is not of yourself, not a a result of works. You haven't earned anything more from God by your good works. And to the second, he rewrites the story by saying, you have been saved by grace, created by the work of Christ on your behalf for good works, that you should walk in them. It's not optional. (laughs) Take a moment right now just in the, in the quietness of this moment, and consider for yourself the story you're telling yourself as it relates to your good works. Why do you do them? If you do good works, why do you do them? If you don't do them, if you think, I'm saved by grace, I don't, it doesn't matter if I do that, why not? How does the truth of God's word this morning for you need to correct your story that you're telling yourself as it relates to your good works? When I think about stories of gospel transformation and lies honestly told, about our value to God as well as our good works being rewritten by the truths in God's word, I know of 
No other story that illustrates what this all looks like working together at the same time, all the pieces together at once, than Victor Hugo's depiction of Jean Valjean in his classic novel, Les Miserables. Maybe you've read that book, maybe you've seen the film or watched the musical, whatever it is. If you have, you know that Valjean is a man who has spent the last 19 years in prison just for stealing a loaf of bread. Developing a story about himself that the only value he has in life anymore is his ability to survive. As, as his entire sense of pride and self-worth has been utterly stripped from him, even his name has been replaced by nothing more than a number, you are prisoner 24601. That's your identity. That's, that's who you are. And after his parole, he's taken in one night cold and starving by this bishop into his home who gives him lodging and food. But continuing to walk in his story as one who is dead in his transgressions and sin, he wakes in the night, robs the priest, and steals off into the night only to be caught and brought back to the bishop's house. But, but, when the bishop has the opportunity to condemn Valjean, denying the story that he's told the police, oh no, this stuff that I've got here, he gave to me. He could totally condemn him in that moment, and yet, he chooses instead to offer him grace. Telling the police that Valjean's story is correct and even adding, oh, my friend, you left so early you forgot these two silver candlesticks as well that I gave you. He gives it all to him. He gives him even more. But once the police have left and the two of them are alone, the bishop walks up to Valjean, speaks with kindness but also solemnity, and says this to him, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil, but to good. It is your soul that I buy from you. I withdraw it from black thoughts and the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. And it's an experience that completely ruins and transforms Valjean all at once as his cold, deadened heart begins to beat again at the call of grace from death to life. And the painful blanks of his old story are filled in with what God said is true about him. Leading him to sing, at least in the musical adaptation, he says, I'll escape now from that world, uh, from the world of Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean is nothing now. Another story must begin. How many of you here this morning want another story to begin? Maybe it's a story for the very first time of my story is now an adopted child of God, a treasured possession of his. Maybe it's a story that you've forgotten and need to be reminded of. And you need that story to begin again for you. When that new story begins for Valjean, that's exactly what happens. A new story begins. He goes on to walk out that new story begun by grace, giving it of himself, sacrificing, even putting himself in harm's way again and again for others out of grateful response for the grace that was shown to him. My point is, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning, that's your story, actually. That is your story. Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, is your story of how God reached down in grace when you were walking in your transgressions and sins, when you were robbing God's house, as it were. 
and rewrote your story. You escaped the story of who you were before Christ and a whole new story began now where you walk in newness of life and into the good works that he's prepared in advance for you to do. It's a whole new story that's begun. I don't know what other stories you've been telling yourself or people have been trying to tell you, what damage has been done, what seeking your value and worth in places other than God has led you to believe. But my hope from our time together this morning, if nothing else, if you come out of here with nothing else this morning, is that you would come out of here being willing to risk fact-checking those stories. Fact-checking them with others, fact-checking them with God and what his word says. Now, no, I can't promise you that if you fact-check those stories with others, the story's always going to be different. Sometimes the story really is as bad as you thought it was. But for this, I know for certain, when you're willing to fact-check any story about your value to God as his child that doesn't see you as his craftsmanship, as his poetry, as his work of art, what you'll find every single time is a story where you filled in the blanks yourself. And it's a story that he so very much wants to rewrite for you with the truth that he reveals to you here in his word. We are God's workmanship. We are God's poetry. Created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. That's the story God wants to write over your life. That's the story God wants to rewrite over your life if you've forgotten it this morning. And yes, yeah, workmanship, finely crafted art, beautiful poetry. It takes time to create, doesn't it? Sometimes it takes years to create. And I think we would all say this morning and raise our hands and say, I am a work in progress. <laughs> but what we can also cling to and hold tight to is the promise Paul makes in just a few pages from now. Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Amen.